0: Well, good morning. How are all of you doing this morning? I'm glad that each of you are here on this Lord's Day uh, to gather together and to worship our Lord uh, with one another. You know, as we've been talking about how God forms within us a Christ-centered culture, this is the way that it happens, is that each of us make the choice to make this time here as the center of our day um, around which everything else has to fit in and and make happen. And in the midst of many other things that pull for our attention and our time, good things, important things, you've chosen to be here uh, to make this worship of our God corporately a a center of that. And so in that, God is is forming Christ-centered culture in you individually and us as a church family and I'm grateful for that. I trust that God will minister to your hearts as we look into his word together. I wanna just uh, reiterate what Pastor Ron uh, said about baptism. Uh, We have a baptism service coming up in uh, September, and so this coming uh, Sunday, September 1st at nine o'clock, we'll have the baptism orientation class. And if you are a Christian, uh, but have not uh, expressed that through baptism, Uh, that I would love to uh, see you at that class and we walk through the significance and purpose of baptism as well as uh, kind of the logistics of how we uh, process uh, that together here. So you could uh, find me after service or you could uh, uh, go online to our website and and there's a link to sign up and uh, come to that class. All right, uh, our scripture passage for this morning is John chapter 13. Uh, 1 through 20. We're gonna uh, continue our series on the road to the cross looking at the Gospel of John here. And so as you're turning there, which I hope you will do uh, in your Bible or device, uh, let me just pose this question. Do you remember, as a child especially, anticipating Christmas Day? Christmas would be coming. Maybe you would be counting the days, maybe even months in advance. You would know how many days uh, there are until Christmas. Uh, Maybe there would be particular gifts that you were looking forward to. Uh, Maybe if you're like my kids, you would uh, post a wish list in a prominent place so that uh, parents and siblings can see it and know what it is you're hoping for for Christmas. Maybe your anticipation has to do with food also. Maybe there's a particular meal that you enjoy together as a family over Christmas. Uh, maybe it's extended family getting together and you look forward to seeing uh, cousins or aunties and uncles and, and everyone coming together. So as, as children especially, uh, we, we greatly anticipate an event like uh, Christmas coming and and we, we look forward to it for uh, months uh, at a time. As, as adults and as youth, uh, there are other things we anticipate as well that we look forward to. Maybe it's a, a wedding day, uh, the birth of a child, uh, maybe there's a vacation coming that you've been planning for a while and you're looking forward to that. But then there are other things that we anticipate but not with much happiness. Maybe there's sorrow attached to it. Uh, Maybe for you as students, there's SAT exams that you need to take uh, or finals week coming up. In in this case, we're on the other end and it's school is starting again and you're like, oh, you're anticipating it but it's not with joy necessarily. Or maybe on a more serious note, a loved one has cancer and there's an anticipation of not much time left and a lot of sorrow that's connected with that. Maybe there's a hard conversation we know we need to have with someone or a difficult work situation that we face day after day. So regardless of the situation, all of us I think have experienced that uh, anticipation for something that's coming and then we've also experienced when that anticipated event arrives and it's here. And so that's what we're seeing here this morning in John 13, that Jesus' hour has come. His time has come. Something that was greatly anticipated is now here. So I'm gonna read uh, from John 13, verses one through 20. Uh, If you're able, would you rise with me as uh, we look at God's word together here? So John 13, one through 20. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. and whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this portion of your word and for the opportunity that we have freely to read your word, to teach your word, to know uh, what you have spoken to us. So God, would you give us open hearts to hear, open hearts to understand, open hearts to obey what you call us to be our teacher this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in John's Gospel, more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, as Pastor Ron alluded to, we see this sense of anticipation Uh, for a coming hour, a, a coming time. Repeatedly throughout his narrative, John writes, the hour had not yet come. He has Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. And then repeatedly also, John records Jesus saying, the hour is coming or an hour is coming, that there's something ahead that we're looking forward to. And throughout his public ministry, Jesus operated from this sense of timing. That the hour had not yet come, but there was an hour coming. And now we see the hour is here. In John chapter 12 verse 23, the one that uh, Pastor Ron read, Jesus said the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now again in this passage that we'll be looking at, It says Jesus knew that his hour had come. So Jesus' hour has come, his time is here. Now when just regular life happens as usual, we don't think too much about what's happening in that time because it's just kind of the normal schedule of things. But whenever there's a highly anticipated time that arrives, then we tend to perk up and pay attention because we know that what is happening is very significant. It's out of the ordinary. And often there's much intentionality or purposefulness in the things that are said or done in a much anticipated time that arrives. Just like probably many of us paid more attention, honestly, to Pastor Cory's final few sermons before his retirement simply because we knew this was a big time. He was thinking carefully about what his final words to us as a congregation would be. And so as we look at this passage here, we need to ask ourselves that question. Here is this time, much anticipated time that has come, and so what do we need to see here? What's going on here? What is Jesus focusing on? What is he doing in his much anticipated hour? The first thing that I want us to see here is that Jesus loves his own to the end. Jesus loves his own to the end. We see that in verse one of chapter 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So even as Jesus walks this road to the cross, even as he approaches his death, he does not turn inward as perhaps many of us would do if we knew the end was coming. But he continues to focus outward. He continues to love his own all the way to the end. He loves them all the way to the end. Love that gives up or that shuts down or that cops out, that's not a true love. Love that only continues as long as it gets something in return That's not a love that reflects Jesus' kind of love here. When 1 Corinthians 13.8, the love chapter, uh, says love never fails, that could also be translated love never ends. And so Jesus modeled here a true love that he loved his own to the very end. Last October, Uh, my father passed away, and at that time, he had been married to my mom for 51 years. And though there is a lot in their marriage, perhaps that, that was not good or healthy and that I wouldn't want to model, what I did learn from my father because I saw it so clearly in his life was a faithful love that loved to the end. And even in that last week when we were with him in the hospital, then in his lucid moments, that was the thing that he was worrying about and thinking about. He wanted to ensure that his wife would be taken care of, that his children would not be burdened. He loved us well. He loved to the very end. And there was a beauty in that, not just because it was my dad, But because in him loving to the end, it reflected something in a small way of Jesus' love to the end. But we need to notice here that when John writes of Jesus' love to the end, it's not this warm and fuzzy love for everyone, it's not the kind of sappy niceness or tolerance that our culture demands. No, he says specifically this is love for his own. It's love for his own. There's a clear distinction here. Jesus has some who are his own and therefore many who are not his own. And this is something we see clearly throughout all of John's writing. In John 1, 11 through 12, it says that Jesus came to his own, in that case meaning his people, the Jews but his own did not receive him, but for everyone who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. So those who receive him, Jesus calls his own. In John 10:14, Jesus says the good shepherd says, I know my own and my own know me. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they would be my own. Jesus knows his own. In John fifteen nineteen, he says if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so Jesus' own are those who are chosen out of the world. There's a distinction between the two. In John 17, 9, when Jesus is praying for us, he says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, God, have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus prays for his own distinctly. And then back here in chapter 13, 1, Jesus loves his own. Now certainly there is a kindness, there is what we call common grace, that God shows to all people in this time before Christ returns. But this love to the end that Jesus demonstrates here, that love is reserved for his own. And that is not everybody. And so that begs the question then, are you his own? Are you his own? Don't be deceived into believing our culture's idea that that, that God is love and love wins, and so probably I'm okay, right? God is love, but God's love in Christ is poured out only on his own, and there is a distinction. And so you need to answer that question, are you his own? If you trust in him this day, he says that all who receive him, all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become his children, to become his own. And so trust in him that his love to the end would be poured out on you as well. So Jesus' hour has come. What does he do in this much-anticipated hour? One, he loves his own to the end. And two, he serves his own with great humility. He serves his own with great humility. Serving them humbly is the way that he loves them. He loves them sacrificially. His love leads him down, down into humble service, down into death. Death to himself and his status here, and very soon actual death on a Roman cross. This downward movement into humility and death is completely the opposite of what the disciples are anticipating or hoping for that this hour will bring. If you think about what we've seen in the past few weeks as we've looked at chapter 12 of John's Gospel, the anticipation is building, the hour is coming, Jesus knows it, the disciples are starting to sense it, the crowds are buzzing with excitement and hopefulness that something big is going to happen. After all, they've seen big things from this man He raised someone from the dead. No one's done that before. Then he received a kingly anointing from Mary. He rode into Jerusalem triumphantly, was hailed as king. He's being sought out not only by Jews, but also by Greeks. The world is coming after him. And so when Jesus announces in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, then many people, including those closest to him, are probably thinking yes glory we've been waiting for this but that's not what Jesus says he says the grain of wheat needs to die to bear much fruit he says whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life he tells them plainly he is going to die what, <laughs> that, that's not the grand and glorious hours that the, the disciples are anticipating? This much anticipated hour is an hour to die? They're not sure if they like that. Well this foot washing event here follows a similar downward trajectory. Jesus knew that his hour had come and so as he and the disciples are reclining around the supper table, Verse four says Jesus got up, he he rose. And I'm not sure what was going through the minds of the disciples at that point, but likely some level of anticipation. There, There was an interruption in the meal here, some kind of an announcement, something is going to happen. They're wondering what is he going to do here? But everything from that point points down. Jesus laid aside his outer garment, he put it down. He knelt down. He started washing their feet, drying them with a towel. And they're thinking, what is this? This is not his job. This is not glory. This is death. We have to understand how significant this act of washing feet was for the disciples. This was not merely a matter of feeling embarrassed that they had not taken the initiative to do it. This, this was just unheard of, this was shocking. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, this is what he says. Doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet, Jesus' feet. They could not conceive of washing one another's feet, since this was a task normally reserved for the lowest, lowliest of menial servants. Peers did not wash one another's feet, except very rarely and as a mark of great love. Some Jews even insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others. This job should be reserved for Gentile slaves, in other words, the lowest of the low. The reluctance of Jesus' disciples to volunteer for such a task is to say the least culturally understandable. Their shock at his volunteering is not merely the result of being shamefaced. It is their response to finding their sense of the fitness of things shattered. And Carson goes on to say that there is no instance, no, zero, zip, no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. So for Jesus as the rabbi, the master, the teacher, the one who had the status and the authority to wash the feet of those lower in status than him, that was completely unheard of, that was unthinkable. And so Peter's protest, it's not just Peter who's always putting his foot in the mouth, his mouth and, and the others are kind of sitting around going, oh, you just let him do it, this is nice, right? No, the silence here is a stunned silence and Peter is the only one who is able to verbalize uh, their, their shock at this. Peter's protest, you shall never wash my feet, literally could read, never to eternity. Or like children might say, never, ever, 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 never to infinity, right? you, You cannot do this, that's wrong. But notice here that Jesus does this act of humble service intentionally. He chooses to do it. There's no demand that someone go find the slave to do the job, there's no sigh of resignation or eye rolling like oh well I guess no one else is going to do it so let me do it. There's no blame shifting, no guilt trip, no manipulation, no anger. This is truly an act of loving, humble service which he chooses. And notice too that humility for Jesus is not denying his status. This is not something where he's trying to buddy up to them and erase the lines of hierarchy in order to get on their good side. No, he he clearly says in verse 13 and 14, I am your teacher and Lord. You're right to call me that because that is what I am. I am above you. And yet he doesn't use that status to demand certain treatment from them nor is he expecting that his status as master exempts him from tasks that are beneath him. So Jesus' humility acknowledges his status, it operates from that status, but what makes it humility is that it doesn't hold on to that status. It doesn't demand that this is something he must keep. Philippians 2.6 says that though Jesus was in very nature God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held on to, but instead he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so this act of humble dying to himself by becoming uh, by, by washing the disciples' feet, that was meant to point ahead to the greater act of humble dying on the cross which will cleanse them completely. And that is why Jesus answers Peter with, what I am doing in washing your feet, you do not understand now. But afterward, meaning after my death, you will understand. Again here we can see an emphasis upon his own. Jesus served his own with great humility. In verse eight, Jesus answers Peter by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share, no part in the inheritance. In other words, if I don't wash you, you are not mine. To be Jesus' own requires that you are washed by him. So again, I ask the question, are you his own? If you are refusing to trust his humble death to wash away your sin, you cannot be his his own because your sin and my sin must be dealt with and Jesus' blood that was shed, that alone has the power to cleanse us of our sin. And so allow him to wash you that you might be his own as well. Allow him to serve you humbly. Jesus' hour has come. What does he do in this much-anticipated hour? He loves his own to the end. He serves his own with great humility. And third, he trains his own by setting an example. He trains his own by setting an example. Verses 14 and 15 say, If I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And Then he says a servant is not greater than his master. Again, Jesus is clearly drawing a distinction. You are the servants, I am the master. You're the pupils, I am the teacher. So if I, as the greater one, have done this act of humble service, You, as the lesser ones, can't assume you're off the hook. Rather, you need to do as you've seen me do. I'm setting you the example. I'm training you. God the Father's plan, his grand salvation plan to rescue those people whom he called his own, that plan hinged on Jesus' effectiveness in training those who would continue the work after he returned to heaven. Because when Jesus became a man, when he put on the limits of human flesh, he did not reach everyone on his own. Right? He did not teach everyone. He did not heal everyone. In fact, when we look at the Gospels, in some ways, it seems like his public effectiveness was pretty limited. But what we sometimes miss is that all throughout his ministry, Jesus is pouring into the lives of these 12 men, training them, equipping them to carry on the work that he started. And the closer he comes to his death, the more his focus narrows until it is almost exclusively on these 12 men and training them. He's spending all his time with them. The closer he comes to his death, very little time with the crowds. His mission is to train them, and a major training method that he uses is to model for them what he expects them to then mimic. And so that's what we see in this event, that Jesus is not just telling them something they are to do, but he is modeling that for them so that they can follow his example. The example that Jesus is setting for his disciples here and therefore that he is setting for us who claim to be his disciples now. It's not merely the particular example of washing stinky feet, but it's the broader example of serving humbly, of not grasping onto status, but dying to self in order to serve others. The disciples also seem to understand Jesus' example to be much broader than only this particular act of washing feet because we only see foot washing mentioned one other time in the New Testament, in First Timothy 5.10, and never as a command. So rather, just as Jesus loved to the end, he served with great humility, he trained by setting an example, those are the very things that he was training his disciples also to do. As he has loved them, so now he's calling them to love one another to the end. As he has served them, so they are to serve one another humbly. As he is training them, they are to train other disciples. So I want to look briefly at how Jesus' example in these three areas was meant to train up his disciples. In this event, Jesus modeled for his disciples a love that endured to the very end. And just a few verses later in this same chapter, John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, to you, my disciples, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when he says, just as I have loved you, it's not meaning just because I have loved you, you're supposed to love one another, but as I have loved you, in the same manner in which I loved you, namely, to the end, all the way, with an enduring love. Their love for one another, our love for one another as disciples of Jesus, that is the mark by which people around us will know that we are followers of Jesus. He modeled for us a love that endures to the end. Now we are to love in that same way to the end. And so that means that it's not just loving when it's easy, not just when it's romantic and exciting, not just when there's payoff or reward. Rather, we are to love when that love is ignored. We are to love when there is no return we are to love when it's hard. We are to love when the feelings of closeness have faded. That is the kind of love that Jesus modeled for us and that he calls us to uh, copy, to mimic. An author, Paul Miller, has written a wonderful book called J-Curve. If you were a part of the All Church Bible Study uh, last fall, uh, hopefully you remember something about the J-Curve because we talked about it in that. Um, and Pastor John uh, spoke a, a message on that as well. And what, uh, what the J curve uh, illustrates, uh, Paul Miller says, is, is the shape of the normal Christian life, that we reenact the dying and the rising of Jesus in our everyday lives and that it looks like the shape of the letter J, that it's down into the death and up into life. And he says that's, that's the shape of our normal, everyday Christian life, and that most often that happens in the places where we are called to love. This is what he writes, Miller writes. Typically, we define love as the love we choose, not realizing that the love we choose almost always draws us into love we don't choose. Love opens the door to suffering. So we may love a person and choose to get married, and that's wonderful and exciting, and then we find that we're living with a sinner who is not always kind or thoughtful or gracious, and lo and behold, they are finding out exactly the same thing. (laughs) Or we choose to love and care for an aging parent and maybe their mental state degenerates to the point where they're combative and, and resistant to all the help we're trying to provide. Whatever the situation, there could be a multitude of different kinds of situations. But I think that truth holds that, that our initial choice to love may be a relatively easy one. We're, we're excited about that. We're choosing that. And yet, in that choice, God brings us deeper. He brings us to a place where we have to die to self to continue to love, to love to the end, to endure in love like him. And as we do that, that is what reflects Christ to the culture around us. Because the culture around us, as soon as it gets hard, says, "Ah, oh, okay, I'm done. Move on. I guess I wasn't in love after all. And, uh, He calls us to something different, to love to the end, to love in that place where it goes down. That is the example that Jesus set, and he calls us as his disciples to follow. In this event also of washing the disciples' feet, Jesus modeled for his disciples a humble service that dies to self. Again, Jesus knew his status, but he did not grasp onto that status. And so we also are told in Philippians 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in Galatians 5, it says, "'We are called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And later in the passage, uh, he says what we are to do with the flesh instead. He says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we are called to die to ourselves, to die to that flesh, to die sometimes to good desires, and good things, but we do that in order that we may, in love, serve one another. So one way that might uh, be lived out for us as men, husbands in particular, you know, God calls us as husbands to be head of our home, but that does not mean that we get to kick back and be served like kings, but rather if we are to follow Jesus' example, Here, it may mean that we step in the door of home after fighting traffic for an hour or more, and we engage with the kids. We look for ways to serve our wife. We take the initiative to help out even if it's not, quote unquote, our job. For any of us, it's easy to serve when our service is recognized, when it's affirmed, when it's appraised, when it's rewarded. It's much harder to serve when that service is unseen. And maybe it's even rejected. But we are to serve with great humility. Jesus set that example and we are to follow. Jesus modeled for his disciples a love that endured to the end, a humble service that died to self, and he also modeled for them this whole process of training others. In the same way, we as his followers now are called to train more disciples of Jesus and set them an example to follow. When Jesus prayed for his own in John 17, 18, he said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And in Matthew twenty eight eighteen through 20, Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them and teaching them, training them, to obey all that he commanded. Disciple making is at the core of our mission as followers of Jesus. We are not only to be disciples, but we are to make disciples. And not just make disciples, but we are to make disciples who make disciples. There's a multiplication that needs to happen in that process. And so as parents, for those of us who are parents, we not only train our children to follow Jesus themselves, but we train them so that one day they will train their own children to follow Jesus in the same way, and their children will train their children, and so on. Our job is not done when our children pray to receive Christ and are baptized. That's a wonderful thing, but that's only the beginning. And the same thing if if you're uh, sharing with a friend or you're inviting a coworker to church, your job is not finished just because they made it into church one time. No, you walk with them each step of the way, helping them know Christ, follow Christ, love Christ, grow in Christ. So whether it's our children, our coworkers, our neighbors, our small group of friends, whoever it is that God puts before us, that needs to be our mindset that we are to make disciples who make disciples. We're to to make disciple-makers. Jesus set the example we are to follow. So Jesus' hour has come. It's an hour that was highly anticipated, yet when it arrives, it's shockingly different than what his disciples expected, because it's an hour to die. There's one more thing as I close here that I want us to see in this passage. There's a thread that runs through it which I think heightens the drama of what is happening in this scene and which makes Jesus' enduring love and his humble service that much more amazing. Look at verse two. What do we see there? Judas's betrayal of Jesus is already in motion at this point. Jesus knows that reality. Three times in this passage, John uh, mentions the betrayal that's impending. We see it here in verse 2, again in verse 11, that Jesus knew who was to betray him. And then again in verse 18, Jesus refers to Scripture being fulfilled that someone close to him will betray him. And then if you look at the verses immediately following this passage uh, that will be preached next week, uh, Jesus is directly calling out his betrayer. And so this foot washing event is happening in the context of an impending betrayal, a betrayal to death from one of his closest friends. That is not an insignificant detail. And yet, with full knowledge of what will happen, Jesus loves and serves these men, including his betrayer, Judas. Jesus did not pass by Judas but he knelt beside him as well. He took Judas's feet in his hands, he washed them, he dried them with the towel wrapped around his waist. And there was a death that took place in that moment, a death to what would have been rightful anger on Jesus's part or justice, at the least a pulling back or an emotional withdrawal, but Jesus does not do that, instead he loves and he serves despite the dying inside that has to happen. And actually, if we think about it, it may not be that much different with all of the other 11. Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him three times. He knows that Peter, James, and John will fall asleep on him in his darkest hour in the garden. He knows that all the disciples will desert him to save their own skin. He's seen their petty squabbling over who is the greatest. He's marveled at their slowness to believe. He knows that every last one of their hearts are filthier than the feet he is washing. And he knows that their feet will get dirty again. This washing with water is only temporary. But in Jesus' dying to revenge, his dying to self-pity, his dying to resentment, his dying to pride, All that we can presume happens in Jesus' heart as he moves around that table one by one and kneels beside each broken, sinful friend, looks them in the eye. The dying that comes through that act foreshadows the once and for all dying that will come in just a few days. That loving act of washing their feet, that is not the end. There is still an end to which he is loving that will come. This humble act of serving those who should be serving him, that is not the end. There is an act of greater humility and service that is coming. So Jesus' hour has come, but it is an hour to die, not to conquer, an hour to... to serve and not to be served. And so he loves his own to the end. He serves his own with great humility. He trains his own by setting an example. And we, if we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we also must take up our cross daily and daily reenact that dying and rising of Jesus. We do not die the once and for all death that pardons sin. That was Jesus' death alone. But we do follow his example of dying to self by not holding on to our status, by serving those beneath us, by forgiving, by enduring in love with those who do not love in return. And in those daily deaths, and many others like it, Like the grain of wheat that dies, we bear much fruit, and so demonstrate that we are his disciples, that we are his own. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for doing something much more than telling us that this is how we are to live. But thank you for acting that out, for living it out, for giving us an example. And Lord, for you as Lord of the universe to do this is so much greater. The, the distance between is so much greater than what you call us to sacrifice and to let go of. And yet you did that. And so, Lord, help us, empower us. Give us what we need to endure in love to the very end. Give us what we need to serve with great humility. And, Lord, may we, in the process, make disciples, pointing them to you, that your kingdom would move forward. We thank you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.